Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. Welcome, Facade Geeks. In this episode, the topic of resilience and the building skin is explored with a couple of resilience practice leaders at Gensler. A couple of contextual notes here before we get started. This episode was actually recorded in April of 2021, uh, and we are releasing it nearly a full year later. Like many organizations, FTI was disrupted by the pandemic. Uh, It was especially tough on volunteer nonprofits like us. But we are back on track now and in the midst of planning our World Congress and Facades Week in Los Angeles, October 12th and 13th of 2022. It is going to be spectacular with paper presentations, some great keynotes, building tours, cocktail receptions. It's going to be a grand event, uh, really fun. Uh, So try and make your way to LA in October. Let's get on with it here. Uh, We've got a great dialogue that follows. Glad you're all here. Hi, everybody. This is Mick Patterson. I'm here with uh, Reeves Taylor and Gail Napel and my old pal, Ted Kessick. Welcome, everybody. This is the Facade Tectonics Institute Skins podcast, and we're going to be talking about resilience today and really excited about, uh, about doing this. Gail and Reeves, you are actually uh, the, the firm-wide co-directors of Design Resilience, at Gensler. Uh, how did you get there? What was the path to that? Where are your roots in your, your interest in resilience, I guess? Gail? Um, so I am recently uh, new to the role as of last autumn, which is delightful. And Reeves is an, an amazing uh, partner. And um, I won't say partner in crime because it's not crime. Partner in, in this endeavor for Gensler. My personal roots, I am an architect licensed in California and the Northern Mariana Islands, where I lived for four years on a very small tropical island. And so a technical architect for the first couple of decades of my practice and then moving into old also management, but with sustainability as part of my background, just because in the days that I went to architecture school, everything was about solar orientation and passive design and solar panels and all of that good stuff. And definitely living on the island, which was about 20 years ago now, gave me a hearty appreciation for the need for resilience. The island we lived on was Saipan um, on the typhoon track. In the four years we were there, we had two super typhoons and several smaller ones, several massive rainstorms, um, an 8.2 earthquake. So, and then wow. frequent power outages so that we just had to learn how, you know, how your buildings can protect you or not in um, what in some ways is an idyllic climate, but can get very hot very quickly when the, when the trade winds stop. So that, you know, that was definitely an an exercise in valuing resilience, perhaps more than I ever had before. Uh, Also live in California, other than that stint on the islands. And so have been through a number of large earthquakes here in the the San Francisco Bay area. 
and that form of resilience is also very top of mind. And and um, ping to Gensler about ten years ago with resilience as a and sustainability as a real you know in you know interest and and concern. Um, to did a lot of uh, of just uh, community action. My own little city north of San Francisco to raise awareness around sea level rise and climate change. So came to Gensler with that thinking and wound up doing more and more of the work focused specifically on sustainability. And at Gensler, you know, our term design resilience does encompass resilience in the traditional sense of the word, sustainability, well-being, and inclusive design. So it's kind of a, a term to cover a number of things that include resilience, but uh, other things as well. And I'll stop there. And anyway, the path is Reeves asked me to be his uh, partner in this endeavor. We usually do a co-model at Gensler, you know, co-CEOs, co-directors of offices and so on. So it was a delight to be asked to step into this role. Reeves, what about you? Well, I've been on this journey for almost 30 years. So the, the long story short is I've been on this journey for about 30 years between teaching um, about sustainability and resilience and how I first got into it in the 90s was I was on the owner side. I basically inherited a number of 1970s fast, cheap, sick and energy hog buildings for a University of Texas Health Science Center. So I learned, having practiced for a few years, what it was like to inherit badly designed projects and trying to make them work with, you know, uh, what was a health science center where you're, you're supposed to be teaching uh, students and working with faculty and staff to create a healthcare environment to learn about wellness and in fact be in a terribly sick environment. And so part of my learning to get to sustainability was wellness, you know, how to make a more healthful space that the way to do that was to save energy and water through going into the sustainability mode and so kind of this mantra of uh, thinking about resource stewardship, the economics, human stewardship. And then while I was also in that spot, we had the first of what became a series of billion dollar events when either tropical storms or hurricanes and all the water and heat that would come with them suddenly clobbered us so that, you know, in a matter of, say, eight hours, the university I was part of which is part of the Texas Medical Center, just our little university suffered almost a billion dollars of damage, which wasn't something we could find easily. So it was on the cool. journey of operations and then being a client to build buildings, uh, including a couple of important buildings like a school of nursing, where we learned about everything from optimizing energy to perhaps get to net zero energy and carbon, which even in the late 90s was a target, the carbon footprint, and that's a really great case study, the UT School of Nursing done with the firm BNIM and Lake Flato. I was the client a team and they were the designers where we really looked at a super high performance envelope to deal with our climate, to deal with acoustics because we're in the middle of a med center and a lot of uh, emergency rooms and very low maintenance. You know, we can build, but state agencies are in, uh, infamous and there's no cap, there's CapEx, but no OpEx. And so I've learned over the last 20 years the importance of the enclosure. And to that end, you know, finally, you know, I teach students at the undergraduate and graduate level all about the importance of envelope. And at Gensler, I'm basically doing the same thing, coaching 5,500 other people, partnering with amazing people like Gail to look at the big picture, but also get down into the brass tacks of, so what is thermal bridging? And what is the challenge of infiltration? And you know, a rain screen is a really great tactic to use in Houston. Can we look elsewhere? So soup to nuts. But we do a lot of strategy think, and you know, it's always fun to 
get down into the, you know, the details with wonderful folks like yourselves. So just glad to be here and learn from you guys. How does this manifest? How does this responsibility that you guys share manifest in the firm? Uh, is it is it more of a training thing, or do you get involved in projects? Is, is it a combination of both? I mean, what role do you play firm-wide? So the firm-wide role is one of, uh, I would say, advocacy and education, and that comes in two directions. It means making sure that the things that our teams are doing across the globe, and you know, we are a global company, get shared with each other and with leadership so they know, especially when we're doing something really exciting and forward-thinking, that that knowledge is shared so that it can be applied for, to other clients as well. And then it's also the things that we find coming from the outside world, like talking with you all and making sure that gets shared through our network and we have at Gensler a network of we're, we're firm-wide leaders and then we have a network of regional leaders so every region across the globe also has two design resilience leaders and then typically we have another in each office and then we have a number of staff who specifically spend their time um, you know full-time and some of them part-time only on sustainability or sustainability and resilience so a lot of it is I, I would say a lot of it is communication um, and one of the things I love the most about Gensler is that it, it, it is amazing with the network we have. You know, if we have a problem, you know, a thermal bridging problem, you know, or an IGU question, that you can punt a question out into the Gensler verse. And if you don't have an answer back from somewhere in the globe, you know, in, you know, half a day, then probably it's a pretty new issue that, you know, we're going to have to do a little more digging or research to answer. And it's just, it's the joy of being in a large firm. I mean, it has its challenges, to, but it also has incredible benefits. That's pretty cool. Can I, is there any way I can plug into that? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people on, on the outside of Gensler, I think, that would love to plug into that network. Well, the, on, the only thing I'd add to Gail is we all have connections to, to projects. That's, that's kind of one of the important things, no matter what you do at whatever level, from the CEOs down, you know, it's the engagement with our client. You know, our founder named Art Gensler, you know, has a series of principles. And the first one is it all begins and ends with your client. And we don't do as well as we do looking at technology, understanding where things are going. You know, Gail's part of the AIA resilience focus. I'm part of the ULI resilience focus. These are organizations that represent clients or our community. So we need to scan what's out there. We need to bring it back. Yes, we have to bring in projects. Uh, but most importantly, you know, with our kind of major vision and we keep up, you know, up optimizing them every 10 years you know we really are focusing on how people experience are safe in the built environment that we create that are challenged by everything from climate and economics and covid etc and so you know it's kind of an interesting typical architect we do a lot you know kind of renaissance people covering lots of territories including you know finding partnerships like the ones we have with you all and you know finding uh, shareable knowledge because we're constantly between research, innovation, you know, that's kind of who we are. It's not just do the same old, same old every time to make a buck. We are a business. We are an employee-owned firm. So therefore, we're, we're responsible to everybody to make sure we're advancing the cause that is not just our family, but our community family. So that's kind of an important facet to our role, too. And I guess the short answer was, yes, we work on client projects, too, and with pleasure. It's, yeah. it's always a joy. Do you guys, uh, do you publish the the research you do, do you have a like a, a an in-house yes. journal or something yeah. that you? We, it was called the Gensler Research Institute. If you go to Gensler.com, there's not only every single thing we've ever worked on in a synopsized form, but we do publish um, 
we're on our third uh, catalog of our research over the last 12 years. The Research Institute is uh, our co-CEOs, Andy Conan, Diane Hoskins, are not only big supporters, but we have some amazing leadership with the Research Institute uh, that looks at everything from how we deliver educational spaces to you know, the focus on the climate challenge with diverse communities. So it is, uh, we believe it needs to be public for the entire, you know, uh, industry. So there's not secret stuff. In fact, we very quickly publish it and share it. Uh, our And the Research uh, Institute, other than kind of a core group of leaders, uh, there's about 12 of us out of plus or minus 5,500 Gensler staff. It really is driven by not so much volunteers, but folks who step forward and get a wee bit of a stipend each year to dive into what they're passionate about. And we have a very good set of survey tools around something called Workplace Index, which is looking at how people work optimistically. It's called WPI, which again, we share that information. And with this whole uh, era of COVID, we did a lot of research about, so what will bring people back to the office? Or what is the future office with, you know, hoteling question mark look like? Or, you know, the landlords, what should they be doing to make a more healthful um, environment to attract people back? So really the whole, uh, you know, if you will, uh, uh, focus or perspective around you know wellness, around how cities work, uh, the resilience focus, uh, a focus too on the workplace. But it what makes it interesting, like so much of Gensler, it's not from some high up group. It's everybody uh, who has an interest in research can become a researcher. So in some ways, it's quite different than say an academic pursuit, which you know you have a distinct group and you have say graduate students, research assistants. You know we're all researchers at Gensler. But what we do is truly we publish very quickly. We think it's it behooves us to make sure that our industry moves along. I'll work with you guys to get uh, some appropriate links there, and we'll put them in the show notes for people to, to get easy access to some of that material. Yeah. We have some things in the past where we did a good bit of research around high-performance envelopes, particularly in projects like our you know, tall tower, the Shanghai Tower, and looking at uh, some other projects we have in terms of, you know, repositioning existing facades to be a lot more high performance through some modular 3D uh, printing approaches. So there's some really good uh, facade components. And you've also worked with some of our great colleagues like Stephen Katz and others who, you know, really know their stuff and also have some good research, client delivered research or otherwise. Right. Steve did a paper at our last uh, case study, paper at our last uh, World Congress yeah, I mean, we our our skins newsletter. I mean, this whole thing of of research uh, in architecture is uh, it really an interesting topic, and in fact, it's the theme of our our soon to be published, like you know, April issue of Skins. The whole focus is on research. How would you guys differentiate sustainability from resilience, or can you, or does it does there need to be a differentiation? I mean, what is what are we talking about when we talk about resilience that is different from sustainability? So when we, you know, I, I always have a tendency to go back to the dictionary or, you know, the most common version of the dictionary, which is somewhat time, somewhat um, more often online to say, you know, what what is the commonly accepted definition for these terms? And there is a difference because, you know, if you really look at the traditional sense of resilience, that is resistance to shocks and stretches, stresses and the ability to bounce back or even ideally bounce forward after a shock or a stress. And those can be from a huge variety of things, you know, pandemic, you know, climate change, civil unrest, all of these things. 
Sustainability suggests that, you know, you are living, I'll just say this, it's in my interpretation, perhaps, it's more of a sort of a living lightly on the land, but you can have a sustainable building that is not resilient. And yet, you know, you, for example, if you do a, a completely green building and it's net zero, but it's not designed in such a way that when that hurricane comes along or that earthquake hits, that it actually is still there then how sustainable really was it? Because all of a sudden you've got, you know, an embodied carbon mess to clear up because you have to rebuild it. Or So there, there is a difference. Um, and I think that, you know, um, you know, I think that that resilience, you can look at it in a very defensive engineered way, or you can look at it in a more adaptive organic way, but, but either way, it does suggest something that is dealing with challenges more than um, it's not just sustaining. And that doesn't mean to disparage the term sustainability at all. It just means that there is a difference, but they're very related. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it's a, it, it, it certainly gives uh, some perspective on it. I mean, I guess you could also, in the, in the same way that, that, that you refer to, you could also have a resilient building that's not sustainable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you it's could called build a fortress a or a castle. Of... Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. I was yeah, there's about... a difference between this this sort of engineered, uh, you know, uh, engineering resilience. And when I studied resilience, I got into ecological science, right, which is much more of a sort of a, a an, it's about adaptability and about bending more than it is about, you know, uh, sort of a, a resistance-based engineering resilience. In fact, they talk very explicitly about, you know, engineering resilience versus ecological resilience. I think you just hit hit on it. One is an engineering mindset, and the other one, in teaching a class just the other night with the two, resilience, and I pair it with biomimicry, you know, learning from natural systems, exactly as you're saying, Mick, that the idea is, is you know, we shouldn't be reinventing what resilience is nature with as you know Janine Benyus who's a great teacher of biomimicry you know I said nature's got two and a half billion or more years of testing things why are we reinventing and though it's tough to apply it to big buildings or our products it's an it's an aspiration I think it's worthwhile and for us resilience is 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 not just a thing or a product or resource stewardship it's the complex interplay as we as we are saying of of human and and global wellness of you know long term life cycle mindset of stewardship of resources of looking you know arguably too at you know the diversity and inclusiveness of of our design aspirations to match the diversity and inclusiveness of you know natural systems so it's kind of an interesting debate and there is a lot of that talk uh, or, or discussion. I also, in speaking to clients, like to say sustainability is a focus on the now, often respecting the future, and resilience is focusing on the future to do better now. Uh, and so I think whether it's a shock like a hurricane or a stressor like, you know, heat gain or lack of food or healthcare, as we see a lot in the US, you know, it's, it's a design response we believe we have with every project every day, uh, every one of our team members. I was just going to point out uh, one of the things that I try to get across to people as well is that, um, you know, when people say, well, which is which uh, in the sense of which is the uh, necessary precondition for the other, I would say it's really hard to achieve sustainability without some level of resilience. And, And so I think at the end of the day, I think sustainability is really an overarching concept and it's 
and and resilience and and wellness and all of these other things are sort of like pillars that hold this thing up and they're all connected like a structure in a way but the other part of it that's really fascinating i find is to, to explain it to my students i always try to show them the challenge that we face today in this regard and i start out by showing them what i think is sort of a really simple model i i go to and i look at the inuit up north in canada and the igloo and i said now i said i i don't know if you can find a building that has a smaller carbon footprint than an igloo but i think something made out of snow is going to just about win the race and i said in there and they in the old days they used to sharpen the ribs of, of whales to make the knife that would actually cut the uh, the snow into the block. So I said even their tools had really a low carbon, um, you know, base to them. And then the thing would just go back to being a snow again. And I said, so if we use that as a measure of how well we're doing, if that becomes our baseline, I said, then I think everything's going to make a lot of sense uh, when we try to analyze it. I said, but if we start using these more sophisticated ways of measuring resilience and carbon footprint and all this kind of stuff, I think we're going to get in trouble because we're going to end up in some cases double dipping, double counting, not counting, uh, missing things. Like it's 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 very problematic. And I think I think the more we go back to very very basic constructs, the easier it's going to be. And I think especially when we get into the business of facades. We're going to discover the the very same thing is that a lot of people now are trying to complicate it. To, I'm reading journal papers. I'm an academic, so I do that. Some of them, the math is scary. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, no one can really have an intelligent discussion about this in the design office anymore because designers don't have all day to just talk about these concepts. They end up having to put as in the old days, at least, pencil the paper and start designing something. So, so anyway, I so I think we're we're at a really interesting point where we're going to have to decide which way we're going to go, what becomes the baseline model for what we consider to be sustainable and resilient. And I would say that the Inuit uh, igloo is pretty darn good uh, as a start. There's other ones. There's 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 uh, teepees and tents type structures, and there's mud huts. So I'm not going to say it's just the ones made out of snow, but I think we're all understanding what was okay in the past and how it wasn't really damaging the planet and a whole bunch of other stuff. And now I think uh, the challenge is, okay, so how do we go forward? And especially educating people to be able to do good design in terms of resilience. So, so that, that's, I'm really interested to see how within the corporate culture of, of Gensler, which, which, which seems to take this really seriously, how do you envision that unfolding? You know, if assuming that the universities and colleges are not doing the job, maybe that they should be. Yeah, I, I would say that Reeves is Reeves is doing his personal best to make sure that some universities and colleges do what they should be, and many people at Gensler actually do teach part time. You know, it's really important to us, um, yeah. not just because we want to see those great students that we want to hire before anyone else <laughs> realizes how wonderful they are. So we have an opportunity to to offer them a job first. But uh, you know, I I think that. One of the things that it's both a challenge and again, a delight at Gensler is that the range of the projects that we do is so huge from, you know, a very small interior 
to a building repositioning of vast different types of buildings and sizes, you know, from a tilt-up warehouse that turns into an electronics manufacturing factory to, uh, you know, uh, to uh, a huge building in downtown Boston or Chicago that's completely reskinned and, and, you know, refurbished but has historic value and is therefore maintained to new buildings like Shanghai Tower, you know, or, or other some of the other large new buildings that we do. So there, we definitely have the need to educate across a variety of options and across a variety of budgets. And Ted, your comment about complexity is so apt because there are clients for whom of necessity, we get, we get straightforward and we get simple really fast because that's what's going to work for them. It's going, what's going to work for them in terms of their original budget, their operating budget, and their ability to maintain their building or their space. And then for other clients who really want to get to cutting edge performance, they really do want to look at something that's more progressive, you know, especially if they're doing something that's a really tall or a really large building or something else where um, an igloo would be difficult, you know, for example, in, in that case. And maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know how the big, the biggest igloo is that's ever been built. I've seen some great, you know, ice sculptures that were amazingly large. Uh, but I think that that, that, you know, that range of complexity makes it uh, necessary for us to look at, you know, each case in terms of what's appropriate for that client. And I just want to get for a bit, a minute back to the simplicity comment that you made, because that is one that, you know, really, really strikes me in terms of passive survivability, that no matter how complex a facade you have or a building that you have, you know, that smart building can become dumb really fast when it loses power. And I had an experience that was uh, a resilience enlightenment experience about 30 years ago. I spent a couple of weeks working on a project in Kuala Lumpur. And over the course of the two weeks, we worked in two different, approximately 40-story high buildings. One of them had a balcony with a door at the cardinal, the four cardinal points of the building on every single floor all the way up the building. The other one was completely sealed. And in the two weeks that we were there, I would say there was a brownout almost every day in Kuala Lumpur. And when a brownout occurred in the building without the terraces, they exited, the, they evacuated the building because that building was going to become unbearably hot so fast that they had to use the power that they had to get people out of the building so that they would be safe and not have heat damage, right, to the people. The other building, when the brownouts hit, Everybody just went and opened the doors on the corner to the terraces. And then in about an hour when the power came back, you know, I mean, you, you, you might not have been able to use your computer for an hour, but in those days, people weren't 100% on their computers. Um, and so, you know, just the usability of that, you know, the, the difference in those two different buildings. And I just went, oh, my goodness, this is such a simple solution and it's such a big problem if it's not addressed. So that was one of the, you know, first start, started me thinking about how you do passive survivability in a large building. So I've got, gone off on a tangent and I'm not even sure I answered the original question, but that just, it, because it's something that you have talked about before and you mentioned in your publication, Ted, you know, it's just something that's very top of mind for us. And of course here in America, you know, and, you know, North America, South America, the world, we're seeing a lot more of that kind of an impact, you know, extended power outages and the need for a building to continue to be operable for the people who are using it. Reeves, you've got your, you've got your own personal experience recently, right? Well, yeah, I was going to say living here in Houston, Texas. Yeah. Not only are we dealing a lot with the hurricanes and, and things that push and pull buildings apart, I mean, you know, on one hand, you want to have a thermally broken, say, curtain wall, but that just weakens it so you, it gets pulled apart in Houston. But in the past 
you know, say 10 years between lots and lots of rain, occasional droughts, but lots and lots of heat, we've kind of been gearing ourselves from our designs of our buildings, how we maintain them, our public spaces, even our infrastructure, water and, and power, you know, in terms of getting ready for emergencies, is all geared to, oh, it's going to be either really hot which draws a lot of power on the electric grid, uh, or it's going to be, you know, potentially very rainy and windy uh, with fronts coming through. And then two months ago, we got something we'd never seen before, which was one week of below freezing weather that basically crippled the entire civilization uh, across Texas. And it really was across Texas. You know, a hurricane like Harvey inundated the, the bottom half of Texas, and there was a lot of damage with wind and hurricane force winds, that is, and, and lots and lots of rain, and therefore some subsequent power outages. But we kind of knew what to do, and we had backup power. When the cold freezing hit for over a week, the entire system cratered. We were potentially within less than four minutes of what is an independent electrical grid in Texas ceasing to function. And when a grid ceases to function, you don't just flip a switch. It could take, at least this is what the press is covering and the experts say, it could take as much as two to four weeks to get a power grid working again. Because back in the 1930s, Texas decided that they didn't want to be connected to anybody else but in one kind of funny place. And even that's a misnomer because there are parts of Texas that aren't on Texas grid. And by the way, they did real well two months ago. But what it meant was it was too cold for systems to kick in. Natural gas, which is how we heat, we think, oh, got natural gas to heat our environment. Well, without power, you can't push in an individual house. So you're heating it, but there's no electricity to push it. But the problem was the natural gas plants got cut off with their power, too, to save the grid. And so they didn't have the ability to push the natural gas in the pipes. And then the backup power was natural gas fed and the generators froze. And so there's this series of really wild, perfect storm events that occurred so that in some places in Texas, people not only didn't have power for as many as five days, but they didn't have water for weeks because the water, when it loses pressure, becomes contaminated, then you have to boil it. But if you don't have natural gas or water, you can't boil it. And oh, by the way, the pipes froze and burst. And so the plumbers made off like bandits for, gently put, they did very well for two weeks. But there were parts of, quote unquote, downtown, parts of city of Houston, not out in the suburbs, which are in the rural area, which in some ways were far more resilient, to use our phrase, than the city slickers. But the problem was we had no idea that this domino could occur. And they're still, you know, our legislature is still pointing fingers, et cetera, et cetera. But what this means for this conversation is really interesting in that you know, we saw in that uh, one week period uh, in San Antonio, uh, we went from five degrees, you know, well below freezing, five degrees Fahrenheit to 80 degrees Fahrenheit in less than 24 hours. And so this this temperature shock and what it does, not just too hot for many, many days or cold and, you know, the parts of the world that are in North America, we know what to do with cold, but it's the swing that wrecks envelopes of buildings, it wrecks pavement, it wrecks crops. It wrecks infrastructure. And so this idea of the ability to uh, to modify your environment that Gail was talking about with those two great examples is increasingly important. The glass box has got to die. Uh, you know, that's just, again, I'll get in trouble saying it because we have designers who love it, but, you know, not able to open windows and too much heat gain or the inability to modify your environment for survivability in any of our program types, houses to hospitals, 
to uh, you know hotels is just kind of silly. We've got to be a lot more agile, I think, and that's what I learned when I we write and talk about the you know, the snowmageddon as they call it here in Texas. Is uh, you know when we have hurricanes, we've learned as a community what to do, and it's important we hang together. You know, if the power's out for weeks as it was after Hurricane Ike. Uh, you know, in the late 20. 2009 to 10, 2010, we all worked together. If backup power came from natural gas or diesel. That didn't work, and we didn't know what to do with the cold. We were all kind of scrambling. How do we help each other? And we're learning, but you know, it's back to that community mindset. Uh, designing to be resilient in the true uh, natural slash, uh, you know, uh, biophilic bio, uh, sorry, biomimetic way is how we have to really approach our future designs. So, Ted, this is a something that you've dialed in on with your, uh, was it thermal resilience design guide or just thermal resilience guide? Yeah. Yeah. I, I did dial into it. I mean, one of the things I'm discovering is that, is that it doesn't matter what you do and you can build a very high performance enclosure. And I think we should do as the best job we can, but these things at the end of the day, only buy you so much time. They will give you a certain amount of passive uh, survivability and you will be able to therefore Hopefully, in that time, it's it's the same it's the same concept as fire resistance rating. I want a two hour fire resistance rating. Why? Well, probably the most disabled person, maybe in a wheelchair, or whatever. We can get them. The firefighters can get that person out of the building safely. It might take them a couple hours, but you know that's that's a reasonable amount of time to safely evacuate a building. Does it stop the building from burning down? No, not necessarily. So the same thing with passive habitability. You want to have enough of it that you can survive long enough in that environment to be able to, as a community, figure out what your next steps are. So you have to, so I also did a, a uh, sort of a resilience uh, uh, guideline publication because I, I realized that you had to also get a whole bunch of other things right in your community, but getting the buildings right was also very important. But the, but the weirdest part about, from you talk about the glass box has got to die, but the other thing is, is that in the old days, and, you know, this reminds me of when I was a kid, and I'm sure everybody's had this experience probably here. You know, windows weren't as big as they used to be uh, or, or as they are now. I mean, I remember busting windows and having to go to the hardware store and get a piece of glass, and I had to pay for it out of my newspaper of money because – but, I, but I, 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 man, did I nail that baseball. So I was pretty proud of myself, but I had to pay for it. And, uh, you know, and then and then I didn't have to install it, but, but I had to buy a little thing of putty. The window putty to go with it, but says there's a small piece of glass there. But nowadays, when we have windborne uh, projectiles, I don't care how, how high performance, I don't care if it's quadruple glazed. But if you're in a hurricane zone and there's flying projectiles, when you look at the damage to buildings, I don't even know how you begin to enclose them temporarily to to, to get any form of resilience going again, where you can bounce back. Like you're 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 so 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 I th so anyway. I guess the point I'm getting at is that so you have to go up and down in scale, just like every good architect knows that you have to zoom in on the little important details and you got to stand back and look at the whole site plan and see what's going on. And it's coordinating all of that in a meaningful way. And I think it's going to make buildings look very different than what we're used to because I don't want to have, where do I go and replace a five by 10 foot sheet of glass? I, I can't even buy a piece of plywood that's big enough. Well, it's it's even it's even worse than that, isn't it? I mean, you guys already brought up the complexity factor, but you know, one of the predominant trends that we've been looking at, you know, for a number of years now is the 
um, the escalation of geometric complexity in the building skin. So they're not even they're not even square or rectangular pieces of glass anymore, right? They're you know they're <laughs> trapezoids and triangles, and there are many many variations of them within a single facade system, which impacts the supply chain, right? So, and you've got to tap the supply chain if you want to bounce back from from that event or whatever. And you know the way that we source glass, even right, it's like it's not coming, you know, a- a- anywhere locally, right? In most cases, right? And I've been involved in projects where, you know, where the glass was bought in uh, in in China, shipped to the U.S. to the Midwest, and coated, shipped back to China to be assembled in the units, shipped back to the United States West Coast and trucked all the way, you know, to New York City to be put up on a building. And I'm not making this up. You know, I mean, how do you how do you replace that, you know, a piece of triangular glass in that system that has been damaged by, you know, uh, a hurricane event or something like that, right? You just gave me a yeah. visual that this is I, does not exist, but it just struck me that, you know, say all of a sudden we have a massive amount of broken glass. And, and I, I think about earthquake too, as well as, as, high, as typhoon and hurricane because of the massive amount of damage that can happen to glazing and earthquakes. And also the amount that doesn't, you know, I don't know if you've seen the footage of Sendai, you know, the earthquake that came before the tsunami, the Sendai airport, huge sheets of arcing glass, you know, major, major, you know, shaking in the building, none of the windows cracked. So, you know, it's sort of like that, how, you know, how much money are you going to spend to design it so that it's really going to last? And what is the design service life that you're asking of that specific component or of the building? But then uh, the the image that I was just telling you when you were talking, Mick, was I suddenly had this image of, you know, going out and having to scavenge all the pieces of glass and, you know, bits of stained glass or, you know, car windows or whatever else that we had to find to fill an opening because we couldn't get the, you know, the glass that we needed in the size and shape. And, and, uh, you know, it's an, it's kind of like a Mad Max reaction. Maybe that's not the direction I should be going, but just thinking about, Mm -hmm. you know. It's another interpretation of what, what Ted's talking about of buildings looking much different in the future. I've been looking at the most recent publication that you've put out, which is looking at all kinds of issues. And uh, so of course you can't help because we're in the middle of a pandemic to realize that, well, we're going to have a really tough time reopening a lot of public buildings just because the ventilation systems suck. And the sad reality is, is they don't have come with operable windows. And I think that's going to be the other side of, of how the, the facades are going to change and that people are going to say, listen, um, I don't know if they're going to change the filters often enough. I don't know if there's enough ventilation capacity. I don't know if it's distributed properly through the building because we've, we've already had those discussions at U of T that we think we could make the classroom safe, but no one ever thought of ventilating stairwells. And yet people move up and down stairwells. You got hundreds of people. And as they go up and down stairs, they breathe heavily. And if, I mean, that's just a danger zone. You're really asking for trouble in those stairwells. And, but we've never thought, you know, so, so it's really an interesting thing to start to now understand that it, it's there's these different levels that we want to bounce back from the pandemic. We need buildings that if they don't have mechanical ventilation systems that are sufficient, that we can augment them with uh, 
some natural ventilation. It might be a bit warm. It might be a bit cool. We can dress accordingly, wear shorts and, and flip-flops uh, or, or put on a sweater or something. Uh, but, but at least we'll be safe. And, and I just don't know what's going to happen now for a, a large part of the building stock where the mechanical engineers went out and said, you know, it's going to be really tough to control pressures and so on. Don't make any of the building uh, windows operable. So, I mean, to me, that's another big area where should we be, you know, rethinking that and explaining to people how important uh, natural ventilation is and taking that and combining it also with the issue of proper daylighting, which is another form of resilience in that you can work longer hours in a building if you have daylight. If you're, if you're so deep, like they had this beautiful old department store in Winnipeg uh, built in the turn of the century, but it has such a deep uh, floor plate that they can't do anything with it because it's basically dark inside. Of course, it was always lit up because it was a department store, but they, they don't know what to do with this thing. They can't get air into the core. They, they, so anyway, what I'm getting at is that, so even like typologies, what, what, what is the what is the depth of floor plate? What what type of ceiling heights do we need uh, for for daylighting and and all those issues? How how big should the biggest sheets of glass be that go into this facade? These I think these all become these these really fundamental questions that when when things go wrong, you realize well this one did way better than that one, you know. And the other thing is I don't know if we're cataloging any of this. In other words you know, will we repeat the same mistakes because we never ever recorded what was good and what was bad and what was absolutely what what no institutional no no industry or institutional memory. Yeah, and, and we talk a lot about that, which is how do we learn from one project to the next? But to riff Ted on what you're saying is you can see the power of the building skin. You know, we've kind of abrogated how powerful that first five feet on on either side of the quote unquote skin is to, well, the engineers will take care of it or the plumbers will take care of it. But if, you know, you kind of look at the history or some of the really wonderful projects that like Renzo Piano or Norman Foster did, you know, maybe two tech, but the idea is, you know, can the building envelope do a lot more than just be a, a piece of glass? Can it be something? And, and it's, it's part of your teaching It's part of some teaching, you know, I've been privileged uh, colleagues to be part of, you know, the, the envelope, the facade is a filter. It's a lens. It's a doorway. I mean, you know, the fact is we have the window and a window isn't just about daylight. It's about bringing in air. It's about having the building have its presence and its brand and its program be clear to the street. Uh, you know, can can the window be also where we generate power through integrated PVs? You know, and so the whole idea of that, you know, the skin, including the roof, can become a lot more vital than just it's a it's something we have to fuss with in terms of infiltration and insulation. How can it really be something that's not just aesthetic, but it really is the livability of the building? And I would say, you know, a, a piece of uh, the envelope that could pop out and become operatable or become, you know, part of the uh, conversation you're having about. So it goes from a department store to an office building to a residential building. Instead of just thinking the mechanical system shift, what what can we do about a design for disassembly that the skin becomes something that supports that shift in a different way than just, you know, <clears throat> we're relying on the engineers and we'll stick with the envelope and throw in, you know, the carbon footprint of structures and the envelope. You know, how can it be that we can reposition buildings without gutting everything but the structure, which, by the way, is still great. But to me, the, the envelope is this hidden asset that, you know, whether through the lack of teaching, 
our you know students in architecture or not encouraging some creative thinking, but for the rare example, rare uh, uh, examples that we do or rare instances we do think about creative uh, approach to the envelope. What you've just described talks about you know precisely that resilience loose fit that we've not applied to the skin of our buildings that I think would be a great start. One of the interesting things that I stumbled across when I was uh, doing the, the the dive into ecological science was this notion of adaptive capacity, you know, and you look at our buildings and our facade systems and they can easily be found lacking in that regard. And, you know, this, this thing uh, that you guys are pointing to, um, Ted, especially like the whole resilience dialogue has morphed over time, right? It's evolved, right? And a lot of it has been about some of the things that you guys have talked about already. It's about what what happens when the lights go out, right? The, The power's off. And that's been a big focus of the resilience dialogue. But the pandemic has kind of really broadened that perspective, right? Because you've got, all of a sudden you have resilience in a, in a different temporal landscape, right? It's not just in the immediate aftermath of a, you know, a, an event like a hurricane or an earthquake. It's an event that goes on for over a year uh, and impacts people and society and in a very different way, right? Over a long time frame. And things like ventilation in a building, lighting in a building, uh, you know, these things become uh, predominant considerations, it's kind of changing the way that we think about the design of buildings. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that idea of, of phasing. You know, what's interesting with what Mick just noted is it's the phasing. You know, life is about phases, nature's about phases, and yet we think of our buildings and all the envelopes as like static or stasis. But, you know, you've just described, you know, the human recovery is what our buildings need to do, which is here comes the bad hurricane. Let's get ready and hunker down. You know, you, if you play uh, soccer, rugby, football, someone's about to hit me. I get ready. I get hit. You know, it's jarring. I then recover and I keep playing or I find a way to get back into the action. Communities need to do that and have historically been successful when they've been resilient like that, which is, you know, fishing villages in, in Newfoundland or, or you know, uh, crazy places in Florida, different challenges. But it's coming. Get ready. It's here. Let's hunker down immediately afterwards. Are we OK? Let's check the basic things. And then we start recovering in different ways. The old Maslow's principle of, you know, focus first on, you know, can you feed yourself? Are you sheltered? And then you start worrying about, is it pretty? You know, how do we do that with what's considered a, the concrete and steel of our built environment? I mean, this is where this notion of, once again, biomimicry or the Living Futures Institute with whom Gail and I work, you know, our buildings like plants or flowers, they're beautiful, they're super efficient, and boy, do they respond well to challenges. You know, if, if it gets trampled down, it repositions itself. You know, I think of the wonderful live and water oaks here along the Gulf Coast that get walloped by the hurricane. They shed limbs that probably need to be shed and they come back bigger, stronger. I've got in my own backyard, uh, basically a 65 inch caliper, massive live oak tree that survived, you know, the last hundred years of challenges. Uh, Gee, why can't we be clever in designing, if nothing else, you know, the enclosures of our buildings. Okay, the structure's gotta be indestructible, but what if we think about you know, envelopes that respond better, you know, to the phases of things. Like it's not just here in Houston, we nail up plywood over the windows or put shuttering up, storm comes and we take it down. And I, I have that too. I mean, could we be creative with something that's a little bit more kinetically responsive? Just, just a thought, right? 
we we were talking about this a lot in 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 our circle here in Toronto, and particularly in the school because we happen to have like people that are involved in landscape and stuff like that. But one of the things that we realized was that really um, we shouldn't think of the building enclosure is sort of this plane in, in between the indoors and the outdoors. We should probably start the enclosure somewhere about 25 to 50 feet outside of the building and say, well, what's the landscape like and what kind of buffering do we get out of that? And is there any shading and stuff? Can we talk about that a little bit first? And then as we get to the enclosure, is the enclosure like, is it is it really just a, a plane or is it, does it have other movable parts to it? Like I've always, and it struck me when I was looking at the warehouse buildings, and I think it was done for security, but along the uh, wharfs that I've seen all, all the way up the Atlantic coast, all the way through US and Canada. But that whole era of buildings that faced the ocean, they all had shutters. And I thought, boy, is that ever smart? Like, here you've got this thing that opens and closes. When it opens, it's out of the way. When it closes, it protects your valuable glass and, and again, against things like theft. But so how much, like, how can we rethink what we should be doing in terms of the different layers? Like, I think that if you look at ourselves biologically, our skin is exfoliating all the time. So, so. What kind of sacrificial layers that are easy to replace can we set up in our building enclosure design so that they can take the punishment, get beat up, but they're fairly easy to, to replace, and that the stuff that really is important back inside gets protected? I mean, we're even engineered that way through evolution is that our deep body organs are protected and kept we only have about a two, two to three degree Fahrenheit range of deep body core temperature. That if it goes above it, you're you're overheating. If you know underneath it, you got hypothermia. There's not really a lot of fluctuation. So there's a there's a huge sophistication for how everything gets modified as we move outward towards our skin. And our our building skins are really dumb in that sense that they're not they're not as refined as they should be. And I think we do have examples of skins that are very sophisticated, but uh, you know they're for very specific climate zones. So when I look at the Persian architecture and the idea of using screens and having a shaded uh, arcade that's actually in advance of the habitable, you know, all of those things made absolute sense within that particular context. So and, and uh, the problem with our facades is. They look the same everywhere, like all across North America. And I know the climate in California is different than it is in northern Canada, but they all look the same. And the hotel chains and, and the big box retailers are the worst for this. And so so I guess it's one of those, like, it, it's how, how do we get those types of ideas back into the mainstream of conversation where you, where and where we, I don't want to train people to become vocal critics, but people should at some point say, I'm sorry, but I, I think the king has no clothes. Like somebody should be saying that is a dumb facade. Like if you really think about it, and, and especially if it's for something like a hospital, which you need that thing not to go down in the in, in the case of one of these extreme events. So th- these are all things that are coming to, to light now, uh, I think. Um, and, and, and the big question is, what do we do about it? And I'm more fascinated, actually, what do we do with the existing building stock? Because that accounts for 98% of everything we got. 
that we're building new stuff. It's it's way easier right now to redesign new stuff. But what are we going to do with all the stuff that's dysfunctional? That is definitely a major topic of a conversation within Gensler. And, you know, there's a series of projects that we did that um, I think that the, the the teams that worked on them dubbed them the fresh air projects where they are actually taking existing buildings and opening up the facade in multiple locations, even to the point of creating outdoor rooms for lack of a better description. So that as you're also doing reskinning, you're also creating space that is protected, but is giving people more opportunities to be outdoors, even up, you know, multiple floors high in a building. Obviously you have to look at wind and all of those other things as well, but that I, I think there are opportunities there and, you know, given the embodied carbon that we've sunk into a lot of large buildings, it's not necessarily the first thing you want to do is to tear it down. But we also have a team that did, this is like 10 years ago, Reeves, the Hackable Buildings Project, where we actually mm -hmm. did a look at you know, oh, yes. how you yeah. can go back to that building stock and say, you know, how not only the facade, which is critical, but also even within the, you know, the interior of the building, where can you start introducing atria, you know, to get daylight into the, those deeper floor plates, the interiors of the floor plates, maybe you even knock out some of the floors how do you adapt it so that it's a different use entirely um and you know i will say more and more of our clients who do who are the ones who are still doing parking garages doing flat garages because they understand that there may not need to be so much parking in the future so then those floors can be repurposed for an interior's use i kind of riffed off to the side but you know to the you know that's a great point about the existing buildings and something that is Hot topic. The notion of a hackable building is fantastic. That's what we should be designing is, you know, hackable buildings. And the problem is if you look at the way that the industry is struggling with uh, renovations in places like New York City, right, where there's a lot of buildings that are badly in need of facade renovation. And they've been very slow to happen, even in a very good economy, mm -hmm. you know, like over the last 10 years, uh, because they're very expensive they're very disruptive to ongoing building operations. Uh, you know, it's a big problem. And if you if you look at at what the problem is there, uh, there's there are very few options available to renovation other than stripping the entire uh, curtain wall system off and putting a whole new one up. We have a couple of examples where we did that. One in Indiana. One in Indianapolis where we stripped the building facade while people were still in part of it or where we overclad in a project here in, in uh, Houston uh, where, you know, we improved all sorts of things while people still had to kind of be juggling in the building, not on the exact floor we work. So, you know, we, there are some examples of tackling facades. There's another one, one post office square in Boston, to your point, where we really looked at the economics of making, but it's still a pretty traditional facade. It's still like no operable windows. It's higher performance glazing, better insulation, you know, uh, perhaps an approach to water shedding in a better way. So you're not looking at infiltration quite as badly as the old uh, components, uh, the old, you know, stick curtain wall components. And these are all curtain wall buildings. Don't even get into precast or old terracotta where, you know, in the old days, you would overclad those in a minute and destroy the terracotta and make kind of a mediocre envelope with very few windows. But, you know, so we have some history in our industry to try to tackle it. But you're absolutely right. We need to improve on it. This notion of uh, of building adaptability into the system becomes very relevant in that regard. Right. Because if you look at that, at that, at, at the essential problem there, it was that these facade systems failed to anticipate the need for future retrofit. Right. It, the, the designers never thought about that. But the, you know, the sort of shocking part of that is that is that, you know, 
today, contemporary, I have yet to find a curtain wall system that was designed in anticipation of the need for future retrofit. This in spite of the fact that, you know, the buildings that we're building to, today do not meet the criteria that, you know, the goals that we're setting up for 2030, 2050, and they're going to have to be, even the ones that we're, we're building today are going to have to be adapted, modified uh, to accommodate, you know, the, the carbon, zero carbon strategies that are, are coming forth. And yet, we are not anticipating that. We're not designing those in, in anticipation of, you know, that future need. Design for disassembly. One of the things that we sort of lack, and I think it would be very, really important for leadership organizations like yours to maybe head this up in some way. But I think when it comes to this whole issue, I think we need some kind of a playbook. And, and, and the reason I, I call it that is that, we, what, what we have to start to develop is we have to sort of, we have to, and I think in North America especially, um, because, you know, I'm confident that in America the appetite is the same as in Canada, which is that we want to lower our carbon footprint. We want to become more resilient and sustainable. We want to have a better economy and we want higher quality of life and, and health and well-being and inclusivity. I think those those are, are deeply shared values. The problem is, is we've never gone about it in a systematic way where we look and say, okay, let's do an inventory of our building typologies across North America, the ones that go all the way from historical buildings that are over 200 years old right up to now. And we need a playbook. Some of the playbook will be, how are we going to retrofit these buildings? because we have to retrofit their, their enclosures. How are we going to think about redesign, uh, designing uh, new buildings uh, so that they can anticipate this future change uh, and, and accommodate it? So how, how, do I, how do I go from the single layer jacket to the one that's got uh, two different uh, unzippable linings plus the shell on the outside? How, how do I start to think about that as a way in which to uh, so, so we need a playbook, and the reason I say that is, is because, because as big as Gensler is, and you're a very large organization, if you really look at the percentage of the building stock that you influence, it's very small, right? Like if if you look at yeah, all the GFA only, only that maybe you one or two percent the world, and yeah. you compare it to all. Exactly. So 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 it's for all of the other like so you you may have it figured out. But but so I just I just think the playbook's important. I think it's something. This is the place for me. It's places like the Facade Tectonics Institute that should be at the forefront of saying, okay, let, let let's let's work with industry, let's work with academia, let's see if we can get some government funding to help out. But we need a playbook because there's going to be some architecture firm that's very small and doesn't have the Gensler resources. And they're going to be in a small town in Canada or the U.S. or probably even Mexico. And they, 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 they could really benefit from having that playbook because they, they'll never have the time to sit down and figure out that playbook. We've got some, we've got some ideas in that regard that we're working on. I completely agree with you. It's, let, me shift, uh, let me shift us. There's obviously a whole lot to talk about. This has been a great conversation. Uh, but I want to I – we have, we, we have educators involved here, uh, you know, in this call – uh, and I want to talk about education. Uh, you know, Ted, you're an educator. Reeves, you, you are, you've got a foot in practice, a foot in education. 
But so the question is education. How are we doing uh, in so so we don't we don't we still don't have uh, an advanced degree program in you know uh, in building skin technology or whatever in North America at least that I'm aware of. Uh, we have an education committee uh, actually that that Isla Aksamija is that is also the chair of our education committee. And Reeves, you should be on the education committee for sure. Uh, you know, I I I am going to insist on that, right? And I'm going to put you in there, right? Uh, okay. Uh, of people that are involved in academic programs uh, and putting together, you know, trying to put together facade-focused curricula and uh, just courses, right? So we've got things going on like sharing syllabi and that kind of thing. But I'd like to get you guys to speak to just how are we doing uh, in the education of, you know, uh, of of the students uh, with respect to the building skin, right? The facade system and stuff. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll speak for a minute. Uh, Reeve will have much more to say, but uh, just very, very quickly on the, you know, on the very young level, um, that's which is what I have the most experience in. I am heartened by how much people under the age of 15 are aware and they're even aware they wouldn't they wouldn't understand perhaps if we said facade or they wouldn't they might it might not resonate with them what we're talking about but you know certainly when you have conversations with young people and i mean really young people they have an intuitive understanding of you know what you know what makes them hot cold you know uncomfortable comfortable and they do tend to relate that to buildings when they can stop looking at their screens anyway they do um yeah. But, you know, but I think that, you know, educating the future citizens of the world is really a critical component of this. And I somewhat tangentially, most of that education I've done with younger students is with students with intellectual disabilities, because my daughter has one. And, you know, teachers are always looking for interesting content for a class that is, you know, let's be honest, a group of students that is often sort of left behind, you know, as with many marginalized communities. And so the opportunity to you know, provide a little education of our future consumers of design and architecture and our future tenants and, and owners and developers, you know, that's that's enormous. And I, I think we should never forget how important it is to start young and start very young because ultimately all of our society will benefit. And then the other things that you mentioned are so exciting and I have no expertise in them. So I'll stop and let Reeves talk because he <laughs> liked that and you is an educator at the higher level. My perspective, I teach the technology sequence for the undergraduate uh, architecture students that include some interiors uh, architecture students at the University of Houston uh, main campus, the Heinz College of Architecture. And I teach, I tend to, I coordinate kind of the introduction to structures and uh, materials and environmental systems, but I, I kind of teach the capstone courses where I hope they, they, the students in the upper, you know, third, fourth and fifth year studios kind of have their act together, kind of had the bases. And now it's time to look at the integrated systems, that is structural systems, site systems, mechanical or en environmental systems, envelope systems. You know, all those systems think that they kind of learned in silos. It's now time to pull it together. And unfortunately, even at that upper level, you know, with the studio curricula, you know, at best they're thinking maybe elevations and sections towards that latter half of the semester. It's like plan, 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 or, you know, kind of renderings, but not thinking 
su- the substance of what's in the rendering. So it's more, which is good, you know, human experience, but what's behind the wall? What, what creates the structure? What's the buildings um, or, you know, objects response to the environment often comes as a secondary part to the, the communication in many studios. And so things like literally the wall section, understanding the envelope, which includes the roof, you know, the, the poor old roof, uh, you know, comes very late in the game as opposed to you need to make some decisions about materialities from your structure to, you know, the, the nature of the cladding, what's available, you know, is, is an afterthought. The elevation is kind of a flat thing and sections, uh, you know, the, the walls, the roof, the floors tend to be a series of lines and not understanding assemblies, even, even though they use Revit, uh, even though they're learning to use that, you know, building information management system. And so, you know, how things perform, much less, you know, how they work, you know, actually doing, uh, you know, a cross-section understanding infiltration or transmission or bridging is a really, 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 really de minimis small group of the students who have their own interests, because that's not often driven by the practitioners who are studio profs, with all due respect. And even, even those of us who are teaching the technical sections have to leverage on the studio, and we catch it only if the studio is there because the students say, oh, we're not designing that yet. Well, <laughs> arguably, please think early about the nature of the envelope, since that's where we have you know, the biggest impact. And that's, uh, that's everything we've just talked about with Mick and Ted. I mean, it's what creates the human environment. It's what creates the brand of the building. It's what makes the building durable. It's what makes the building healthful, heaven forbid, you know, focusing on the human beings in the building as opposed to the, the building as an object. So, you know, frankly, you know, Technology is something that that ebbs and flows with passions of students. You know, they get the sustainability and they get, you know, we have a role in how we create the built environment, as Kirsten said, but I'm I'm just wondering how far back the typical pedagogy with, you know, accreditation and so forth, trying to push it forward. You know, I still am frustrated by not only uh, our students knowing how buildings work, how they're assembled, you know, going to construction sites and looking at the means and methods of how does it get built, but then how it operates, how it works, how we measure its success. And that, you know, this thing called a wall or an envelope or the outside wall or the facade is a series of layers and assemblies that have to work together where you concern yourself with everything we've talked about here. I, you know, as much as we try, it's still a bit of an uphill battle. Um, at Rice, I teach a diversity of disciplines and the engineers and, and others who you talk about how buildings work get it. Now, they're not in the mode of designing that, you know, I could have an economist, I could have a kinesiologist, but they kind of get the idea that like our skin, the buildings have something that keeps the outside out and the inside in. And conceptually, they begin to appreciate it and say, that's really important. I think our architects are so overwhelmed or students that is, are so overwhelmed that, you know, it's easy to grab what's been done or what they see in a, you know, a picture and don't understand even the details of what it takes to make it. So I think it's the sweating, the tactical and the strategic, but it's also understanding literally, you know, what the material is, its properties, how things work. And over time, you know, how, what does the climate, what does the, what does nature and the weather do to it is a whole nother nuance. I think that's probably lacking in our education. Ted, what do you think? Well, uh, I would say Reeves is, is pretty well echoes my own thoughts when it comes to, you know, what the awareness level is in most architecture programs about the relative importance of the enclosure. I, I think one of the things that we have, that we do not do well, and I think we could learn a lot from the 
medical profession. So I have a colleague of mine at the University uh, College in London, England, and he has a, a, a program there that's called uh, Building Energy Epidemiology. And they've taken a medical approach the way you do to epidemiology. Uh, and, um, and they're looking at the relationship between energy and health in their case. I think here in North America, um, we, we, we should be um, getting people involved. And, and I would say yes from, from K to 12 for sure. Um, people should understand post-occupancy evaluations. We should be conducting a lot of them. We need feedback. Like we do that for all of our consumer products. You want to go out and buy, gee, I, I want to go out and buy myself a new ATV. Uh, what are the features I should look for? Holy smokes, the internet's got reams of information on this thing and it's only worth about 8,000 bucks or whatever it is to buy. And yet you're looking at an $80 million building. You can't find anything about, you know, any anything to tell you what, what are the most common things that go wrong in that particular typology of buildings? What, what Like if you look at the data that comes from the University of uh, uh, California at Berkeley, um, the people at the Center for the Built Environment, their post-occupancy evaluations, what they reveal is that North American office buildings are dreadful. They have not improved substantially in almost 40 years in terms of their ratings by the people who occupy them. But architects for years have sort of looked and said, well, doesn't matter. And uh, But it does matter. So I think, you know, the idea of post-occupancy evaluation, the idea of being able to go out and measure performance, uh, I, think, I think all of these things would make it so that you would have data by which you could then Trans, like to me, you have to get it up and then back down, and you get it back down to the level of K to twelve, where all of a sudden, all of this stuff becomes what I call evidence based, and and so you're not no longer preaching an ideology because I hate ideologies; they cause a lot of problems in this world. But evidence is evidence. You look at people and you say, "Look, this is what's shaken." You know, eighty percent of people think where they work sucks. Well. Okay, and 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 I think school kids doing a post occupancy evaluation of their own school, of their own home, possibly of a grocery store, of the public library, I think they would learn just gobs of stuff. That next generation would have a completely different set of asks from the design community for what they want in their building. They would look and they'd say, "Now that I know all of this stuff, which it's like teaching people about nutrition," and then. You see how it affects their their food choices because they understand. Ooh, gee, this stuff's not really good if I eat a lot of it. Uh, this stuff here would be a lot better for me, and so on. So, I, so I again, I I, I I I don't know if if attacking it at the in the architecture school is by itself is going to get us where we want to go. I do think we need a playbook for the practitioners, but I think we have to. The real focus of the education should be broadly educating the public of the built environment and what makes for good built environments and bad built environments and what makes for sustainability and resilience and what does not. And then I think people will eventually, when they get it, they, 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 they will, I'm hoping they will make good decisions and that they, they will push their politicians to enact legislation and things that will make sure that that's what happens. But I think until it comes from the grassroots, it's very difficult for the industry leaders uh, to to the the inertia of the of the development and construction industry in in North America is amazing. It's just it's huge. But I, I take a quick issue 
Ted, with what you said, I think it's not all practitioners that don't recognize they need to do better. You know, it is the industry. You know, it's working against the brokers, the owners, the investors, the bankers, uh, et cetera, and, and of course the contractors. So it's that team that makes the inertia tough to say, we need to rethink the glass box. I mean, at least, you know, speaking for Gensler, Gensler, you know, focus, we really do want to make the workplace, the office in particular, that's our bread and butter, a much better place to be. So I do think with our workplace index and some other things as a small island in the storm, I think we really do want to swim upstream and make it a better place to be. But there's a lot in the mix beyond the envelope too. I mean, it's the mechanical yeah. systems and the quality of the air and, you know, vibrations and, you know, a terrible neighbor, uh, who's a, you know, a, another tenant who's, who's a problem and noisy down to, you know, do I feel safe in the building, which is huge in this day and age with COVID. So there's a lot of mix in, in, you know, what the center for the built environment in Berkeley is measuring. And we have, we have partnerships and we have some, you know, uh, challenges with their work, but you're absolutely spot on. We as designers creating this amazingly expensive and long lasting thing, it better listen to those who live in it, who operate it, who invest in it. And take and take heart rather than off we go to the next project and kind of ignore what's behind us. And I think there's a lot of us like yourselves who recognize as a as a profession within a big industry with lots of inertia. It's it's ours to to slightly slowly shift the Titanic's direction. So I, I I agree, but I want to be sure that it's not condemnation of the entire architecture practitioners who are you know I think trying to do their best. <laughs> No, I, and I do too, but that, that's what I'm saying is that I, I think that it, because we live in a capitalist society, if the consumer starts demanding something, the, the rest of the industry will say, okay. And so what we have to do is educate people to, as I say, make healthy choices, healthy for the planet, healthy for people, and healthy for the economy. So you have to teach people all what the relationships are. And, and, and I Spot think on. that the most yeah. meaningful thing we can do is start young. And say to them, listen, we're going to connect the dots for you. You live in a democracy. You're free to choose whichever way you want to go. But what we want to give you is good evidence so that when you make a decision, it's an informed decision. And we hope you make the right one. And I think most people will make the right decision. But I think right now, people, it's not even on anyone's radar. So I, so, so I think that's the part that's, that's sort of sad, that we live in the built environment. We spend 90% of our time indoors. And yet... The subject matter doesn't even come up in K to 12. It's a great point. But Ted, I do want to offer, you know, a point of optimism for the future that um, yep. and, and maybe the, the K to 12 one is obviously, you know, it's, it's near and dear to my heart because of it's what I have experience in. But in general, we are seeing an, a, a wonderfully heartening shift in many of the clients that we work with in their increased focus on a, a place in, uh, you know, buildings and, and interiors in which they can be healthy and well-being is becoming mm -hmm. a, you know, a top of mind for many, you know, many, many of our clients, especially all of our global clients. And this is driving the industry from that direction, which is it's exciting to see because obviously if they're building their own buildings, you know, they are the masters of, of that, um, of that solution. If they're leasing, they're going to developers and saying, this is what we want now. You know, we are, we have become more informed. And so, you know, I feel real optimism in the last, I would say, especially six to nine months, you know, COVID has accelerated this. You know, I think that um, in the BlackRock, yeah. you know, the comments about uh, have also accelerated it. So uh, totally you're spot on, but, but I actually do feel 
um, more positive about this than I have in a very long time, that, that the consumers of space are learning to demand more, not necessarily to the granular level of understanding, you know, which specific things like a high performance envelope they need, but definitely it's got to be a place that I feel good and healthy in and my employees feel healthy in. That's a game changer. And we're really excited to see it. So be a little heartened that we're seeing this happening. Last question. Okay. Um, given the situation, you know, uh, that, that we're in, in this industry, which is knowledge sharing is not, <laughs> not, uh, common, right? I mean, everybody has to sign a new building project. Everybody's got to sign this really egregious non-disclosure agreement to get a contract. So it, it's very problematic, right? It, it, it essentially cuts uh, a feedback loop that allows the industry to evolve, right? To, to, to learn what mistakes it, it, it has made and get better as it, as it moves forward. So this lack of post-occupancy evaluation that, that Ted is talking about, the lack of, of having that happen typically on buildings, what can we do? You know, what, what can we do to encourage, uh, you know, a, a more open industry that is sharing that kind of, uh, that, that kind of information? I mean, it's a tough problem because you've got attorneys and building owners uh, very concerned about the liability that is associated with that performance, right? And we've got a very risk-averse industry, notoriously risk-averse, right? So what can we do to encourage that kind of knowledge sharing? That is a great question. And you know, I, you know, I think it's interesting for me watching my children's generation where for, from their point of view, everything should be open source. That's just the way that they think. And it's, you know, it's often because of lack of experience around the value of knowledge. And sometimes your, your currency is your knowledge. And, you know, so we understand, but younger people may or not, may not have had that experience specifically yet. But you're, you know, you make a great point that, you know, from the, the ultimate sink or swim of the human race, you know, will we, will we sink faster if we don't share information? <laughs> so, you know, but, but I think that we're seeing also, you know, with, with our clients, you know, I think it depends on how you share the knowledge and, you know, whether you can share it in a way that doesn't threaten something that is, you know, justifiably something that's your intellectual property and building performance, you know, depending upon the situation may or may not be in that exact realm. But I think we are seeing people more and more interested in sharing uh, you know, a more of that information. I would love it if every one of our clients let us do a POE on every one of their projects, but that's not, you know, that's not the standard yet. And, and I think that we have to all encourage every one of our clients, our colleagues, you know, or the contractors that we work with to look to think that way, you know, and to think in terms of the benefit overall of all of us by having that knowledge be shared. But it is, you know, we're in a capitalist society where that IP is is of, of significant value. It is something that is not, um, it's probably not going to change overnight. Yeah, we're trying to make the case at Facade Tectonics, right? We're trying to, to do our part to make the case to building owners that it's really in their best interest to, to do this. Their, their future buildings will be better if they do that. One, one thought I had is that, you know, like sometimes you do get things that are like complete game changers. And so I'm just trying to imagine if you had something that was as ubiquitous as Facebook, but it was called, let's say, Placebook, and that people could go and register their opinion, their their ratings of 
the quality of wherever it is that they live, work, play. This includes public parks, whether they feel safe at night. It would be really interesting if we could sort of democratize the feedback of people, you know, how they relate to the built environment that they live in. I just think it would probably be one of the biggest game changers because you would start to come to realize and people will come to realize that, wow, you know, look at the projects that people love. And, and, and uh, the, way, the way North America works, I think, is that when there's something that's hot that people really like, we tend to do more of it, right? I mean, otherwise, you would never see the success that you see for things like Starbucks coffee. Once people checked it out and they said, I, I really like that coffee. That's a heck of a lot better than that crap they're serving at the donut shop down the street. And, and all of a sudden, like, they're everywhere. But there's a reason for it because people really want to have a good cup of coffee. So so at the end of the day, people really want to be in a great building. And, 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 and I think that's what's missing is is the feedback loop is everything the knowledge sharing is is everything and and i think people do share it but in the strangest of ways it's anecdotal it's over dinner with friends which we don't do much of anymore because of the pandemic you know you talk about oh man i went to this place and it was just fantastic and whether you're talking about a restaurant or 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 a gym that you worked out at or whatever when you were out of town or some place that you checked out and 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 then we talk really because we had a, 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 a either a really great experience or a horrible experience, but that's not enough to get things going. Because there's no repository of it. This is what I'm finding is is that there's no collection of the data such that you can start to, you know, like what well, once we get into the next generation of AI, where you can take mass data, big data, and actually intelligently crunch it, then you're going to start to see things that are going to be, I think. Totally awesome. To Ted's point, there's it's not a new concept, but we're really seeing, particularly in North America, the really ramp up about reporting how things work. And it's under this this overused acronym ESG, Environment, Social and Governance. The investment community, particularly the sovereign and institutional investors, it could be the Toronto Teachers Retirement Fund, it could be any number of the groups who are now getting smarter about where they invest their money in the real estate world, which at the moment is about the best place to put your money for return. You know, maybe the U.S. stock market before its bubble blows or something. But the fact is the investment community saying, show me the proof that you're using less energy, that you're carbon smart or that your building is a healthful building through, and again, what the metrics are and how the measurement is, real-time, auditable, are the metrics, to your point, Ted, in a, in a massive database, are they comparable from one part of North America to the next, different project types? But we're seeing you know, groups springing up like LEED you know, in the old days with sustainability, looking at building performance in a way that's measurable and metrifiable and frankly, you know, uh, uh, they're making money from assembling real-time data to be understandable, not only to those whose portfolio or handful of buildings it's focusing on, but the investment community. And money is driving this push for, you know, more understandable key performance indicators, which frankly are all about operation, all about how it works. Now, we as architects are kind of behind the curve because we don't get how design can lead to better outcomes of how it works. And yet the investment community is saying to our clients, show us you've got an asset that's got, you know, long-term value. 
And we're trying to dive into that as a big firm saying, so how do we help our clients better understand this focus that is, you know, clearly heavy on the E, still trying to get their arm around the S and governments, transparent governance and transparency, maybe a little off our topic today is what's behind of, you know, it's got to be auditable, truthful. It can't be greenwash because this is about money and this is about also insurability which drives the ability to even have a project. So, you know, we're leaving this conversation with you all, which I think there's going to be, talk about invest in a smart envelope, and that has all kinds of paybacks for everything we've talked about from, you know, energy smarts and and air quality potentially and a daylight and views, which drive people's happiness or not. You know, that dark building, the, the bronze glass building nobody likes. You know, I think we're going to see by the very motivator of investors saying, we want to invest in a better widget and how that widget works is what we've just talked about that we've not got our arms around. Hey, everybody. This is Mick. After that great bit, Reeves had to bolt for the airport. So we pulled the plug on, on this episode. Really a great episode. Uh, if you hung in there through the whole thing, we ran longer than planned. Uh, you are truly a facade geek. But it was a great dialogue. Uh, and uh, I want to thank Gail and Reeves and Ted for participating and putting the time in and, and, and having this great conversation. Uh, it, was, it was really excellent. So just a couple of notes here. We are planning uh, in the midst of planning for Facades Week and our World Congress uh, in October 2022, October 12th and 13th. It's going to be spectacular. Uh, we've got paper presentations, some great keynotes lined up. There's going to be building tours and cocktail receptions. Uh, it's going to be just a, a grand event. There's going to be a lot of people there that you haven't seen in a long time. So, you know, venture, make your way to L.A. Uh, always a great end destination anyway. We've got a bunch of stuff going on in Facade Technics. We've got a bunch of committees if you are inclined to do so. Lean in, help us out. We can use all the help we can get. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to talk about. We've got more Skins podcasts coming up. We've got the Skins newsletter. Uh, we've got an advocacy committee. We've got a research committee, education committee. We've got a lot of, lot of ways for people to get involved. So join us in this effort. We view the building skin as the key to sustainability in buildings and urban habitat. So join us. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Later. <laughs>